0: Morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter four. This morning we'll continue our study through the book of Acts, as Pastor Greg had already shared. But we're also going to be continuing um, one of the accounts that Luke records for us uh, that we began to look at last week. So it's a continuation of what we studied last week. So if you weren't here, we'll do a little review, but we, um, you can find that message online and, and uh, review that way as well. But... To review, in short, we had we had begin to follow Peter and John as they were going into the temple. They were going to go pray. Right? It was the third hour or the ninth hour at three p.m. And as they were going in, they encountered this man that was um, lame. And we learned that many lame people would be laid around where the temple was to ask alms of those that were going to worship. And so this lame man saw Peter and John going in, and he petitioned them for some donations, some alms. And Peter looks at him, and he tells the man, look at us, Make, fix your eyes on us. And he says, silver and gold I don't have. I don't have any riches to give you, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we see this man miraculously healed. Peter pulls him up. The man stands and it says that his legs were made whole. And that he began to leap and to jump and to praise God. And so this one man that was actually unable to go into the temple was now able to go in and praise God. And it became a great... uh, great thing that people started to notice he was jumping around and and it grabbed their attention and they began to go over and see what was going on and Peter seeing the people coming and inquiring of of this man as they're recognizing him as the one who begged he begins to teach he opens essentially the word of God and and he expounds on what Moses had said to Israel he explains that that Jesus had come, that he was the Messiah, and that they had crucified him, and that they needed to repent and receive him as the Messiah, because Moses made a proclamation that he would send a prophet that God would send a prophet like Moses, and that they needed to receive him. and, and, and Peter makes that connection that Jesus is a prophet. To receive him meant blessing and forgiveness of their iniquities, but to reject them meant destruction. To reject him, to reject Jesus, meant destruction. And so Peter, in his preaching, was drawing his audience to make a decision about Jesus, he brought them to a place of decision. The healing of the man in Jesus' name spoke to the healing that Israel needed to experience in Jesus in receiving him as their Messiah to receive the forgiveness of their sins and to follow Jesus. Now, as we look at our message today, I was thinking through this, this one word really kept coming up. And I called our our I titled the message today a holy dis- disruption or a disturbance. If we actually look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, we could see Jesus as being one who disrupts things. We saw him in the temple go in and flip over the tables of the money changers, disrupting their livelihood, disrupting the, um, the cheating that they were doing to their own brothers and sisters. We see him disrupt the plans of the Pharisees that they, as they would bring this woman caught in adultery. And he would say, I forgive you. And he calls them out on their sin. He disrupts their plans. He's disruptive, But he was also disrupted to what was happening to the woman, right? In a good way. We see Jesus disrupting things for good and for bad. We see him disrupt the lives of his disciples, right? They were out fishing. Or Matthew was at at his tax collecting booth. And Jesus says, come follow me. Well, what about the family business? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Jesus is disrupting their lives. He comes at the perfect time, and he disrupts a person's life, really for their good and for his glory. But the way that it disrupts their lives is dependent on the person being disrupted, right? Are they receiving what Jesus is doing, or are they rejecting it? The disruption is welcomed as good news by some and a problem to get rid of by others. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news that a person will ever hear or can hear. It's a message of great power that changes lives and disrupts people for good. It's hope for the hurting. It's peace for the troubled. It's freedom for the slave to sin. But it also can be a disruption to others. Interrupting the status quo, illuminating the darkness that they live in, pointing out the falsehood of their beliefs. The message of the gospel is a threat to the beliefs of others. And this is what we'll see today in our message. The joy and praise of those who receive the message of the truth Disrupting their participation in falsehood. And then we will see the frustration and the disturbing of those who had a way of life and an influence that was threatened by the message. Let's look at our scripture today as we begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now as they spoke to the people, and this is Peter and John, It says that the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees Sadducees came upon them. And being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There's an illustration of the two ways to receive this disturbance in their lives. We see the response of the two groups to what Jesus was doing in their midst. Remember last week I told you we would wait to see what would happen? Well this is one of the blessing, the, the good part, how, how the people received But we also see that it didn't come without some sort of opposition. These religious leaders, it says, as they were disturbed. Now, these religious leaders, we're told, were made up of the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests were those who would be in the temple facilitating worship, leading prayers, offering the temple sacrifices. And they were primarily from the sect of the Sadducees. And I'll tell you more about them in a second, what that sect believed. And then we saw the captain of the temple. This was a sort of police group that was uh, made up of Levites that were there um, in order to keep the peace, to maintain order at the temple, and to watch the gates to make sure that no unclean person entered the temple. So you can see why these people came up at the disturbance. But we also have the Sadducees. And what's described here is a sect or a belief of Judaism. And it also involved many of those who controlled the temple hierarchy and most of the resident priesthood the main thing that they believed or rather didn't believe was in the bodily resurrection and the existence of angels or spirits. That was their main kind of distinctive for their beliefs. We see in Matthew that Jesus had encountered some Sadducees and their main Along with Jesus was the resurrection they wanted to to call him out on this thing he talked about the scriptures on the screen here but Matthew 22 starting at verse 23 it says in the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him Jesus and asked him saying teacher Moses said that if a man dies having no children his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother now there were seven, There there were with us seven brothers. See where this is going? They're going to try and make an elaborate illustration to try to confound Jesus. So they go on and say, well, the first brother died. Then he married the wife and didn't raise up And That married the wife. He had no offspring, so his brother was supposed to do that. This was tradition. for For they all had her, they said. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. These were the religious leaders and Jesus just called them out like that. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. It's interesting that Jesus uses those terms being that they didn't believe in angels and he's correcting their understanding of the resurrection. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And he references their very own scriptures. See, the thing with the Sadducees is that they only held to the first five books of the Bible as well. Known as the Pentateuch or the law. And so he calls out scripture from their very own set, that they, the only set that they trust And he he quotes God, the Father. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus clarifies for them. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when we're told, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He confounded the Sadducees with their own understanding of the scriptures. And we see Paul having an interaction with them later on in Acts, in chapter 23, in verse 6, it says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For, for Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the reason that this group came running and came after Peter and John was because they were preaching the resurrection in Jesus. These Sadducees had a pretty comfortable life. As leaders in the temple. They were loyal to the Roman. They were buddies with the Roman government. They were loyal to them. They desired to just maintain the status quo. They were wealthy. This role allowed them to be wealthy. And so you have two men coming into the temple teaching something opposite of what you believe. They're pretty disturbed. And they're gathering a pretty large crowd, right? We see that about 2,000 men, who were the main ones counted, aside from many women, hey, were added to the number of believers. And we get the number 5,000 because we saw that 3,000 were added when the Holy Spirit was poured out earlier in the book of Acts. And so we see many people turned to the teaching of these disciples. So the Sadducees had a lot to lose. Their influence among people was threatened. They were greatly disturbed. And they were disturbed because they taught and they preached. They were explaining the scriptures to people. And they were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. The the person that they had just crucified not that long ago. They were disturbed by what they preached that Jesus... In Jesus, there is resurrection from the dead. And he is the first to rise from the dead. Something they didn't believe. And as I've tried to make it somewhat of a central theme in our worship this morning. The resurrection is the central theme of the apostles. In their preaching and their teaching. It was the very thing they witnessed. The, the person that they had come in contact with. That they could not keep quiet about. It's interesting to see, though, that when you do compare the Gospels with the book of Acts, we see that Jesus' opponents were primarily the Pharisees. Jesus would expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, endangering their influence among the people. But we see in Acts that the primary opponent of the apostles is the Sadducees, because they preach the resurrection from the dead in the name of Jesus. And the Sadducees denied that. But people were turning to their message and receiving it, which then threatened the influence of the Sadducees. So the Sadducees just saw the apostles as a threat, a threat to their security as leaders of the people. And as we share the gospel ourselves, as we open up our mouths to begin to speak about Jesus to others, we have to expect that there will be resistance to that message. Because one, it opposes or threatens the beliefs of others. You mean I can't live my life the way I want? I can't just do what I want? It's a threat. The message of the gospel is a threat. But in some people who are hurting and broken, finding that the way that they have lived their lives has left them empty and hurting, it's one of the greatest pieces of news they could ever hear. But we have to realize that we're a part of a spiritual battle when we engage in in sharing the message of Jesus. But it's often the reason why we don't speak up, right? Right? I don't want to disturb this person. They're enjoying their coffee in that book. And it looks so peaceful sitting in front of that cafe. I don't want to walk up to them. Maybe the Lord's prompting you to, to go say something. I'm like, oh, I don't know. They, I don't want to disrupt them. They look really involved in their studies right now. Or we might say to ourselves, I just don't feel comfortable knocking on doors to invite people to come to church. I'm disturbing them at their house. Or we might find it more disturbing to us that the Lord would prompt us to actually go and, and share the message with others. Oh, i got to stop what I'm doing to go over there. I actually have to pull the car around to actually go back to the guy that you just prompted me to go talk to. Maybe even disrupt them and what they're trying to do. But Jesus, Jesus loves people enough not to let them go to hell an eternity apart from him undisturbed. How many, are you think, how many of you here today are thankful that the Lord disturbed you and where you were going? What you were trying to do and carry out Thank God that He disturbed my life and that He continues to do so in my life. To me, it's one of the ways that He has shown His great love for me. And the disciples, in one sense, pay the price for opening their mouth, as we see in verse 3. It says that they detained the apostles till the morning. They had to hold them in the cell until... They could have a trial the next evening. It was actually illegal to, hold, illegal to hold a trial beginning in the evening to discuss these kinds of things. And it also points to the fact that Jesus was unlawfully tried because his was held in the evening. But there will always be a risk involved in spreading the message of the gospel. Jesus actually spoke of this In his sermon on the mount, it says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 18, he's speaking to the disciples. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. To reject Jesus is to reject God. But we see on contrast the religious leaders who were threatened. We see as Luke points out in verse 4 the response of those who heard their original message what they began to teach responded greatly. There were 2,000 or more men that were added to the church that day. And we see Jesus Work through these apostles, starting with the 120 that were gathered, moving to the 3,000, adding 3,000 to the church, and then through Peter and John going after the one man, the lame man, to now 2,000 added. Every single person matters to the Lord. And one of the themes of it's a sub-theme of Acts. It's really the growth of God's word in spite of opposition. And we see, this is contrasted for us first thing through Luke's account here in chapter 4. That despite the opposition from the religious leaders, God's word continued to grow. I like how one commentator wrote, Like a juggernaut, the message irresistibly moved ahead. Two leading apostles were bound, but the word of God cannot be bound. That's why I sung the last song. Move our mountains. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop our God. Let's look at the next set of verses here. It says in verse 5, It came to pass on the next day that the rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest and Caiaphas... John and Alexander and as many as were of the family of the high priests were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, "By what power or by what name have you done this?" So this gathering of ruling authorities was known as the Sanhedrin. We have we have a bit of learning to do this morning to understand who the apostles are encountering, but it's known as the Sanhedrin, and it was comprised of the Jewish rulers, elders, and scribes. The rulers were the chief priests who were primarily of the sect of Sadducees, like we said. And there was 24 of them on this in this group. And then it, the other portion was the scribes who were primarily of the sect of Pharisees, and there was 22 of them. So you can see how the Sadducees kind of outweighed the Pharisees in some cases. And then we have the elders, and these are men that didn't belong to either sect, but they were older men that were um, leaders in the community and and served in this group. Seventy persons in all, at least in the Sanhedrin. And those that Luke names were of the family of the high priest. So we have Annas, he was the first uh, Roman-appointed high priest. And then we have Caiaphas, his son in law, who was the current high priest. And then John and Alexander, which were of the family, but we don't know a whole lot about them. Something that's really cool is if you want to Google it, you can find online, they found the ossuary, the bone box of Caiaphas. A historical, accurate account of Luke. That Caiaphas lived, and he was one of the high priests in Israel. Now, the list here, the thing that we want to pull from, why these names are listed, is that this is a list describing all those of the ruling class of the Jews. And Luke lists them because it illustrates the power that the assembly, that Peter, John, and the layman were brought before. These men would have been part of this same assembly that examined Jesus at his trial, and now the apostles stand before them. So you can see They had the power to get Jesus crucified. And now the apostles are standing before them. Potentially facing the same repercussions. But we have Peter, John, and the man in the midst of the Sanhedrin. In the Sanhedrin, when they arrange themselves, it would be like all of you guys, essentially, there's maybe around 70 people here, I don't know. But... Getting in like an arc, like a half circle, so you could all see each other's eyes, and then a few of us standing right in the middle of you. So that you can make eye contact, and you can, you can even debate about the response of the person or people standing in front of you. So they have the semicircle is set up, and then we have Peter, John, and the man who was healed in the middle of them. And they fire off their first question. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? This was their main question. Who sent you to teach these things? And what message or whose message are you teaching? By whose authority do you think you can just come in here and do this? Because that is what was... Threatening their authority. Teaching, someone teaching an opposite message, something that they didn't have control over. But let's look at what Peter says here in, verse, in the next portion here. In verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow, what boldness! But where did that boldness come from? Where did that power come from? Where did that authority come from? The Holy Spirit within Peter. This is the same Peter who was denying Jesus to the servant girl. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he testifies before the same rulers that could take his life just like they did Jesus'. But he respects them. He, He begins by addressing them, saying rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He recognized their authority. But he also points out the absurdity of their own trial." If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man. By what means he has been made well. You guys want to pull us into a trial because we helped somebody? Because they weren't concerned about the man. They weren't concerned about how God had changed his life. They were concerned about their own power and authority being supplanted by another Peter tells them boldly who the name was that they exercised such authority. He says, let all the people of Israel know. These leaders, everyone, everyone, I want everybody to know this. He's not hiding behind anything. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you crucified, you know him. He stood before you in the same place. You sent him to the cross, remember him? He's the one that God raised from the dead. You tried to kill him, but God raised him from the dead. He is alive. It's by that man's name, by his name, that this man was made whole. And really, this is the message that Peter has been teaching since chapter 2. Quoting Joel, saying that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the name of the Lord. And he went on to teach, if you remember, that Joel, in saying that scripture, was pointing to Jesus. It was through and in the name of Jesus that the lame man was healed. And it was in Jesus that Peter calls the crowd to repent and to be converted. Jesus, the central focus of the message, his death and his resurrection. Now, in verse 11, Peter goes on and he says that this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And he's using scripture to... Make a point to them. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. And the cornerstone, if you don't know, you, we have the old buildings that were, they would hew these giant stones out of the rock and they would be brought in to build these temples and these grand buildings. But the chief cornerstone in the building of these temples and these buildings was the one that was laid down first. And it determined it, or it set the shape, the size, and the direction of the whole entire building. By crucifying Jesus, they rejected Him as their Messiah. They were rejecting what God was doing. And by utilizing this imagery from the Psalms, He's calling them to a point that... Everything that God is doing is built upon his son, Christ, the Messiah. And you have rejected him, which means that you are not a part of what God is doing. Peter would have learned this actually from Jesus, looking at Luke chapter 20. Luke records for us, it says, then he began to tell the parable, the people, this parable. It says, "A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent serv- a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out." And then the owner of the vineyard said, "What shall I do? I know. I will send my beloved son. Possibly they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they recognized among. Them, they reasoned among themselves saying, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. That the inheritance may be ours." So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. What rich imagery that Jesus is using, this illustration of a vineyard. He said... God, the thing is, is that God has been sending to his people the message of the prophets that the Messiah is coming and this is what he'll do. This is what he'll look like. This is who he is. And when he arrived on the scene, they rejected him and he was crucified. If they reject the Messiah that God has sent... They're missing salvation. Look what Peter says in verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is the thought that all religions lead to God. That a person will find God through following Buddha, or Muhammad, or the teaching of Joseph Smith, or the Watchtower Society. But it is only Jesus who has risen from the dead. These other offers, these other religions, they offer a form of spirituality, but only lead to death. Jesus, because he has risen from the dead, He is the only one that can give life and salvation to those that come to Him. But we see here Jews, these these religious leaders who were content with their worship and religion and denying the central focus of it, Jesus the Messiah. It wasn't about God and and His Messiah anymore. It was only about what they had gained from the religion. Power over people. Particular lifestyle, prestige. They didn't even care about the man who was healed. He was a threat to them, as we'll see. If Jesus is rejected, we are told that there is no salvation in any other. And that there is no other name by which we must be saved. Remember, Joel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, We see the religious leaders now attempt to stop the message. Let's look at verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside, go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in his name. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, that Holy Spirit anointed boldness. Now, boldness in the Greek it is a word that was used in the political arena to describe a frankness of speech. They were speaking all of what, well, it speaks of a person speaking all of what they think without regard of the consequences, even if it costs them something. We all know people like that. They just say whatever's on their mind. And it seems at no regard of how it might affect others. And most of times, let's say this. If it's not under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's probably doing damage. But we see Peter and John speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit. Frankly, boldly, and very straightforward. And that's how the, the religious leaders received it. But they recognized two things that they were uneducated and untrained. Now, this isn't describing that they were men who had never gone to school. Of course, Peter and John had been raised, like all Jewish young men would have been raised, taught the Bible. They would have understood and grasped the concepts of, of what was there, possibly memorizing great portions of Scripture. But what they're describing here. What they're recognizing is that they, they had not been trained necessarily by some rabbi that they recognized. Or were certified rabbis themselves that would qualify them to be on the temple teaching. They had no degrees to qualify them. And this really was the same way that they viewed Jesus More or less astonished by him in John chapter seven, starting in verse 14, it says now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters? Having never studied, they knew that he was not just by the way he conducted. himself. He wasn't trained under some rabbi, but he spoke still with authority. The thing is that they underestimated about these disciples is that they had the best training and the best education they ever could have.
1: Because they had
0: been with Jesus. They recognized something about them as Jesus like. They had three years, three plus years spent by Jesus' side, under his tutelage, under his teaching. They saw his life and how he conducted himself. They heard his. Explanations of the scriptures. They had been with Jesus. The other issue. That the religious leaders had. They had a man that had been healed. Who was lame from birth. And as we, we see that this man. Was over 40 years old. This was a notable miracle. The power and authority of Jesus was displayed in this man. It was put on display by Paul or Peter and John. But in this man, no one could deny what had happened to him. By him existing was a very declaration of the might of God. And the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest witnesses to the world is the radical transformation of a person by Jesus. The testimony of a person is something that cannot be denied, it doesn't have to be accepted by another person, but it cannot be denied. Now, Jesus spoke to the disciples that they would encounter these situations. And he gave them instruction as to what they were to do. In Luke 21, verse 12, it says, you know, Jesus has been talking about the last days. And he says, but before these things, they will lay their hands upon you, on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the uh, to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Look at what's happening to Paul, Peter and Paul, or Peter and John right now, I'm sorry. It was an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. We're seeing Jesus's very words played out in the lives of his apostles at this moment. And who is it that hinders the powers of the religious leaders? Jesus. The name of Jesus. The power of Jesus. So they sent the disciples out to figure out what to do. They noted the miracle. It's evident to all. No one that looks at him can deny it. It can't be hidden. They saw the healed man and they could not deny it. So what's their resolve? What's threaten them? I find that so funny because what is a threat to somebody who is empowered by Jesus. I mean, they're unstoppable. There's no threat. They didn't care for their lives as their own. They were Christ's. And the sooner that we recognize that, the more power we'll experience in Jesus. Even if their lives were taken from them, they had life eternal in Christ. So they threatened them so that this doesn't go any further. Well, we can see that their threats didn't help at all. And we see Jesus as the true ruler. Let's look at verses 18. They, so they called them back, Peter, John, and the man, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Hey, you know what? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You see, the disciples, the apostles, they were accountable to the Lord for what they were doing. They weren't accountable to these leaders. They respected them. They spoke to them respectfully. But when it came down to listening to them or listening to God, God was the true ruler. Jesus had instructed them. He had given them a task. He had taught them. He saw, he appeared to them, resurrected. There is nothing else they could talk about. There was nothing else that they would teach. There was nothing else that they would preach. All they could do was talk about what they had seen and heard. And the question for us today is, have we found Jesus so compelling in our own lives that we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard? Has his word impacted our hearts so much that that's the thing that we have to talk about? Have we participated and received of his grace that we want others to know about that? Are we so impacted by Jesus that we can't help but be a loving disruption in this world to tell others about him? The rulers were at a loss, they couldn't respond back. To what the disciples just said much more than just trying to further threaten them we see in verse 21 but they were powerless to punish them why? because they were held captive by the, the people the people that they sought to influence if, they, if the people saw them going against what was, going, what was happening, what they were glorifying God recognized as a movement of God they would lose a credibility or credibility to them and it's cool because this, 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 the words used for glorifying God, it's, it meant that the people kept on glorifying God. This wasn't just something like, praise the Lord. No, they kept going. They're like, look at this. Look at the man. Hey, Bill. Sally, come on here. Check, check this out. Check out what? You know, they kept spreading it. They were glorifying God. While the Sanhedrin were threatened by Peter and John and what God had done through them. It was to laugh at the helplessness of the Sanhedrin. This was a great miracle that was performed. Now this message will continue to go on as we see in the remainder of chapter 4 next week how the apostles and the followers of Jesus responded to this situation. This was one of the first a rest in a sense that were made on the church. And we're going to see who they turn to in this time of of trouble. But as we consider the greatness of Jesus this morning, we've come here and we're gathered together, we're going to partake of communion. And one verse that just kept coming through my mind was First Corinthians 1, 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. What the Sanhedrin saw, what they experienced to them was just foolishness. These men had no credentials. These men were teaching whatever. But they couldn't deny what was going on through them. You see, most people can look at a a, a Savior that has been being crucified as foolish. Who wants to serve somebody who was killed? But where the power is, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's this whole message to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. It speaks to the power of God. And when we partake of communion today, that's what we're doing. We're reflecting on Jesus Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Because when he said, when he instituted this, this meal, he said, this bread, it speaks of my body broken for you. And this blood, this cup, it, it speaks to the new covenant made in my blood. And then he goes on to say, I'm not going to eat of it again until we're gathered in in, in the kingdom. Present and future all wrapped into one. This speaks of our future joining together with Jesus under his rule, under his righteousness And remembering all of what he has done for us. How we got there.